Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Alan Akami, who is a postdoc research associate in digital culture and society at the University of Liverpool, about her new book, Media Distortions, Understanding the Power Behind Spam, Noise, and Other Deviant Media. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dave, for inviting me. Um, this This is so interesting, this book, and it's it's kind of like perfect timing, given the fact that all of a sudden whole swathes of the world have uh, migrated online for, uh, for for their their work and and you know um, their kind of digital lives have been accelerated um, by the current pandemic crisis that is the backdrop to this uh, this recording. And and it's funny in a way because you know academic books obviously take a long time to write. Um, I guess you know this is the product of. Uh, several years work um but it it's it does feel so kind of well timed and so and so relevant uh, and i guess the place to start with the book is um if you could say a bit about um kind of how you got interested in writing about this and and where the kind of the overall uh, project has has come from Yes, that's a really good question. Uh, I first want to just emphasize that the book is open access, so people can actually, and there's a whole website that I dedicated to it. There's a playlist, um, and there is more information that didn't manage to go inside the book. So if you want, uh, you can check it through my Twitter account, but you can just also type uh, media distortions, um, and then you can find it and download the book. Um, So the book is uh, roughly based on my PhD. uh, thesis, um, but of course, I I had to write it in a more engaging way, which for me uh, is actually more fun because I used to be a journalist. Um, we talked about it before. I used to be also a radio broadcaster, so for me, actually writing in academic language was never a natural way of communicating ideas. Um, and I think also my past in uh, I used to work also in uh, music labels. Um, and write about music, electronic dance music. Um, my first book is about the Israeli psychedelic trans culture. Um, and the radio shows were also about music. So I think that for me, as sort of an entry point, thinking about um, media culture, digital culture through sound concepts was something that I wanted to uh, explore. Um, I think that the book uh, sort of went through a lot of different uh, stages. Um, I even had several things that didn't quite materialize. But what I was, I think, very intrigued by is this kind of notion that spam is only something that is talked about uh, through computer scientists' uh, sort of narratives and frameworks. And I was really intrigued by that because I thought that it's such a, an important thing. And actually, we have very little information about that. And um, I wanted to explore that more. And the more that I explored, 
uh, the more I realized um, that it has a lot more politics than we um, realize. So for me, actually, this book, one of the main things is that um, as media scholars, but also sociologists uh, and historians and anthropologists, um, it's quite important not to uh, take for granted a lot of the way that computer scientists tell us how computers and internet and different kind of sort of uh, network cultures work and try to challenge that and tell different stories and sort of peel off the politics behind that. I mean, it, it, it's funny you mentioned the kind of, you know, the the, the playlist and, and the overall, I guess, kind of um, maybe like media presence um, of, of the book because, um you know, it would be slightly kind of unusual, I suppose, for an academic book to have a playlist associated with it. But but that tells us something about um, the way you approach this question of spam and, and what your kind of method is. And, and one of the things you talk about, you know, early on in the book, but also uh, provides a kind of framework is this idea of a, of a kind of like listening approach. And I was really struck by that because it's, you know, kind of slightly unusual, I suppose, for um, uh, academic uh, analysis, but it adds, you know, incredible amounts of, uh, of value actually. So, so what is this sort of listening, uh, approach to these, these questions of things like media power? So I think, um, when we talk about media power, um, we almost exclusively talk about it through vision invisibilities and different kind of metaphors, um, a vision. Also, another really prominent uh, metaphor is black box. And while I think that they are uh, good metaphors, I think that they don't really encapsulate the kind of the multiplicities and the complexities that we're talking about when we're talking about media uh, infrastructures, which are always multi-layered and have a lot of different kind of actors. And so because sound uh, and specifically listening allows us to sort of uh, cross boundaries of what is public and what is private, which is a concept that I, I focus on quite a lot in, in, in the book, I felt that this is a better way to, to understand um, what is happening in the, the sort of the three stories that I'm talking about. So I think that listening sort of involves a selection and attention to different kind of things, uh, but it also allows us to tune in and out of spaces. And I felt this is something that is more productive when we think and theorize uh, digital cultures. And again, it's not that I want to uh, replace all of the way that we're talking about these uh, different kind of objects or practices, but I think it's it's really good for us to start thinking or sort of broadening the way that we talk about these things. And, and it's quite, um, not contrast perhaps, but it, it, it kind of complements um, some of the key theorists in the book as well. So, you know, the kind of classic um, approach through Foucault is, is, you know, as you mentioned, you know, quite a visual one, thinking about things like panopticons, you know, um, that kind of classic um, image of, of Bentham's plans and stuff that, you know, is probably quite uh, familiar to, um, to, to listeners of, of this podcast. And, you know, the kind of the listening approach is, is, is something different and a, and a compliment. But I guess the question is, is like listening, you know, around and about what? Um, and before we get into your, your three uh, stories, your three 
examples, we probably need to know a bit about what actually is this thing spam, um, which, you know, opens this, you know, whole kind of question about what is deviant media? What are we talking about when we're talking about noise? But um, quite early on in the book, you try and get to grips with like what spam is and how, you know, it's had maybe different eras or different uh, epochs. Yeah. So um, again, when I was starting this uh, project, um, a really fun thing happened that Finn Brunton published his book about spam. So I'm guessing a lot of scholars are doing research about something. That's a moment where you're like, Shit, what, you know, what what should I do? Because somebody's writing a really great book about that. But what I realized is that Finn Brunton also sort of adopted these kind of cons- common um, understandings about what spam is. Um, and I wanted to understand it in different ways and how could maybe we think of spam in different kind of technologies and in different kind of times. And so the book is basically divided into three examples where I look at three types of deviant media categories. The earlier one is noise. The, the sort of the more contemporary one is uh, spam. And then I'm talking about antisocial. And basically what I show uh, through these kind of uh, three stories and three deviant media categories is the way that media practitioners try to shape um, our behaviors and understanding in specific way. And this is where the sort of the power um, structure and the power relation, the power asymmetries that they create um, happens. And I wanted to explore that um, uh, by unpacking these kind of our common understandings. And I cannot emphasize enough how many times when I talk to people and they say, oh, so you're doing a research on spam. Maybe you can uh, solve all of the Viagra emails that I'm getting. And I was like, first of all, no. Second of all, I was so struck by how everybody has one way of thinking about it. And I was really, I wanted to sort of peel the layers of this, these misconceptions um, and the politics around them. So spam doesn't really uh, have a specific um, uh, definition and it shapes in different forms. And it's basically the way that media uh, practitioners or media companies want to define things that sort of harm their business model at a particular time in a particular uh, space. Um, and I guess as we go along in this podcast, I'll, I'll explain a bit more. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really struck by um, the dominance of what's good for the business model as, as being this um, really kind of crucial theme that shapes all these different kinds of practices, whether it's, you know, um, legal regimes uh, at the EU level, whether it's like, you know, the kind of uh, technical architecture of Facebook or um, a more sort of <laughs> kind of traditional um, example, which is around New York, uh, the Bell Telephone Company, and the way that kind of like certain things were mapped as noise and certain things were, were, were not. And I suppose that um, story of, of, of Bell is a really nice way of telling the story of the um, of the kind of the business model um, focus um, that runs throughout the book. So yeah, what, who were Bell or who are Bell? You know, what, what was their kind of um, attempt to almost kind of control New York City um, and the noise in the city? So again, just before I start to explain that, I just want to say that with spam and noise, which I'm going to explain now, um, what I did is basically analyze different kind of technical 
material, but also legal material, which are usually material that uh, is presented as if it's like neutral or objective. And I peel these layers of objectivity and show how there is a decision-making process in deciding what is deviant and what is the norm. And this is where the politics starts to get complicated. So with Bell Telephone Company, which is one of the biggest media companies that ever existed. So when we're thinking about companies like Google uh, and Facebook, Bell Telephone were pretty much uh, bigger than them, at least at that time. Um, And we're talking about the 1929, which is the time where the stock market uh, crashed. So uh, it was a time of uh, a lot of uncertainties. Um, And as we realize with now, and a lot of these kind of uncertainties, um, it allows for media companies to sort of reshape their position as uh, important actors that can have decisions of how social structures are going to be defined and sort of ordered. And I think that we also see that now with the COVID, where we see uh, the whole debate about the contact uh, contact tracing apps um, and the kind of dominance of technology companies in deciding about basically social issues Uh, And I think that this is part of what I'm trying to say is that actually we should be very careful about allowing these kind of big companies making decisions uh, that are so important in our societies. So in the early 20th century, Bell Telephone Company partnered with um, the Noise Abatement Commission. um, And basically what they were trying to do um, is to create this kind of noise map in order to understand uh, what uh, are specific behaviors and what kind of specific spaces are really noisy. And that was also a time where a lot of different kind of technologies uh, were being developed. And this noise abatement committee um, was uh, consisting of different kind of interest group, which included um, insulation companies and real estate companies who wanted basically to reshape New York City as a more commercial friendly space. And in order to do that, uh, they partnered with Bell Telephone, who wanted to position themselves as an important uh, um, company to consult with, but also in how people can think about their relations. So that was the time where they developed the decibel, which was a measuring unit, but also they developed uh, different kind of instruments to measure different types of behaviors. Now, of course, only Bell Telephone Company engineers could basically tell you what is noisy and what is not. So they had the power to establish this kind of division between what is noise and what is not. And not surprisingly, the kind of the people and the spaces where they defined as noisy were people who interfered with the the sort of the interest group that uh, formed this committee, which were uh, Black Americans. Uh, foreigners, people who sold uh, different kind of uh, things on the streets without license. Um, And so tagging them and sort of categorizing them as noisy allowed them to to create this kind of distinction and try to uh, educate people to what kind of things are uh, should be become the, the new social and what kind of things should be filtered out of our society. I mean, it, it, you mentioned um, uh, this this idea of of, of race, and um, you know, some of, some of the examples that really struck me in that chapter were around things like, you know, jazz clubs being immediately seen as kind of illegitimate and a, and a problem 
Um, and then, you know, m- music in elevators and in these kind of, you know, commercial spaces being like, oh, yeah, they're totally fine, uh, which is one of those things that is kind of, you know, depressing in its, um, I suppose, the simplicity of, of of the example. And that chapter, you know, is really, um, I think, clear about this, about the um, the power, not just to kind of, you know, uh, define particular behaviors and in individuals as deviant, but also, you know, to almost kind of reshape uh, the city and, and, and the entire world around this. And that reshaping um, comes through really clearly in, in the next example, which is around the, the EU. And I guess, I mean, I, I wonder if this is the, the right kind of understanding, but I guess the EU's failure to regulate things like digital advertising, or, or is that is that perhaps too strong? I don't know if it's a failure because it was a, an intention to to be like that. Um, so it is a failure, but it is it is an intention to provide more power to technology companies um, and to allow that through a different kind of legislation that gave more power to technology companies and different kind of instruments which allowed. Uh, mechanisms that uh, today we see for granted. Um, And in those times, these were crucial times to think about which kind of communication do we want to have? Which, how are we going to define different kind of things? How are we going, which kind of roles of each kind of the the players in this online new territory is going to have? So it is a failure, I think, for us as citizens, but I'm not sure that, you know, for governments, um, it is. Um, and I think that we, we still I'm quite amazed how a lot of people have sort of brushed the whole cookies um, and a lot of the, the things that were developed at that time, cookies, pixels um, and talk about today and different kind of uh, uh, surveillance and already moved to artificial intelligence and all of these kind of things where uh, the, the kind of the, the main things that enable that and enable everything that we think about today, basically Facebook uh, Amazon, all of these things were cemented and sort of uh, naturalized and sort of licensed and, and normalized um, in that time. Uh, and also at the same time, there's the creation of, um, in that kind of, you know, classic sort of Foucauldian sense, the creation of a particular kind of subjectivity. Um, th- this idea you talk about as the creation of, a, of an EU data subject, which I found both you know, a kind of an interesting sort of concept. And, and then was struck by, you know, the extent to which we, you know, both in Britain for a while, but also across Europe, are these data subjects that you're talking about? Yeah, I think um, when I'm talking about the data subject, I'm basically talking about how um, the digital advertising industry, together with tech industries, wanted to produce people as data subjects, um, basically, this kind of consumers who are passively navigating within these kind of default settings, architectures that structure the, their possibilities, their ways of living. And this is where, again, Foucault sort of comes into place, because basically what Foucault talks about when he's talking about power is the power to structure specific possibilities of living. So I think one of the best examples is the um, both the default setting of browsers, but also the consent mechanism. So if you live in the in European Union, you know that if you go on websites, you get this box that says, do you agree? Do you consent? And most people don't really 
understand what that means. And in a lot of the cases, first of all, you sometimes don't even have the option to say, no, I don't agree. Um, and I think these kind of uh, computational um, options, which seem quite innocent and, and so on, um, are quite powerful in a way to narrow our understanding of what is possible within these um, infrastructures. What kind of things can we demand from these companies? Uh, what is actually happening? Can we negotiate with companies? Um, and so, um, and this kind of division of what is happening in the back end and what is happening in the front end, which is another thing that I talk about, this kind of default setting of browsers, that you can't really see what's happening in the back end, uh, which was a result of lobbying of the advertising industry. So actually one of the, uh, the, the cookie standards, so one of the things that I do, I analyze different kind of technical standards. I've analyzed the cookie standard and what I realized is that actually what's written there in the first draft, at least, is that the people who drafted it recommend um, for people to see what's happening in the back end. So a lot of the things that we can sort of see today, uh, the amount of cookies that are sent to your um, uh, computer and so on. And the advertising industry said, no, 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 this is going to confuse people. We we have too many things. You can't confuse them with that. Now, I'm sure that like, like me, you have at least 20 tabs open at the moment, uh, and so people are not really confused by seeing a lot of things. And actually, it helps people understand what's happening in the back end and maybe be more informed about these kind of things. So what we're seeing is um, with these kind of technical options, which are totally intentional and can totally be also different if we wanted them or if we demanded them, um, shaped how we engage with these platforms. And this had significant um, results and sort of implication in, in what's happening now, because now a lot of people, um, I think, do not demand different kind of things from technology companies because they just are not aware that they can. So cementing these kind of options in the early 2000 helped shape a specific sort of online citizen that is very passive and it's not really asking a lot of questions of how things are working, what kind of things can I demand, could things be designed in different ways? And this is very crucial to a lot of the things that we're experiencing today. I mean, everything you said would have been just a really straightforward description of you know, so many problems with Facebook. Um, and obviously Facebook is uh, crucial to the, the, the last part of the book. It's it's the final kind of uh, detailed engagement or or case study in the book, and yeah, you know this idea of a, a particular set of architectural choices that favours um, the corporation, people's you know potential sort of at least you know uh, lack of asking for different options or, or maybe passivity in, in in the face of Facebook. Or all of these you know are, are kind of crucial crucial themes. And before we talk about again, you know the kind of uh, the Facebook uh, subject and it's, you know, kind of ordering um, of our contemporary world. I, I'm also interested in, in kind of like how you went about researching Facebook and, and you raise in the book, you know, that kind of problem you, you mentioned it earlier of, you know, trying to do research on something that is uh, not constantly changing, but, you know, either new scandals emerge or, uh, you know, kind of new points uh, for research potentially kind of make things a bit, um, you know, kind of slightly out of date or obsolete. So, so what was your kind of approach to dealing uh, with the problem of how you research Facebook? 
Um, I think like a lot of internet researchers, this is one of the most frustrating thing because literally every time you write about something, something else is changing. Uh, there's a lot of lawsuits against Facebook. There's a lot of revelation happening every time. I remember even as I was like writing the, the last revisions of the book, there were things happening. And so it kind of is uh, overwhelming. But I think that once you uh, try to have a question and what is your main argument, then, you know, it doesn't matter if things um, keep on changing. It's the actual questions and the actual themes that you're trying to research. And I think I, I quote Jonathan Stern's really great um, argument about that when he says, why do we have, uh, you know, why do you still rely on different kind of theories of, you know, Stuart Hall, uh, who's talking about television. And, you know, while the ex specific examples might not apply, the kind of the broader questions that he's asking about encoding, decoding still matter today. And he also talks about Bourdieu. So I think I took that as, okay, you know, I'm not going to be able to capture everything all the time. But what are the kind of big questions that I want to ask here, which will still um, sort of be applicable, even if things are going to move uh, very fast? And so um, I, I remember I started to I started to um, analyze uh, the terms of use uh, and I cataloged it um, every two weeks for more than a year, different kind of terms trying to see. But I think one of the things that have contributed the most to this uh, chapter was um, Facebook uh, research um, archives. So may, maybe people are not aware, but actually um, Facebook publishes academic articles that are published in um, peer-reviewed um, journals, which is a whole different discussion of if they should be allowed to do that in general. Um, but basically, I developed this method, which I called um, uh, a platform reverse engineering, which is I take these articles and I try to sort of understand what are the things that they focus on? How how do they rationalize their research? Importantly, what kind of tools are they using? Because being a Facebook researcher obviously means that you have uh, access to a lot of the tools that they have. But that can also indicate what kind of tools they're using. What kind of things matter to them when they're talking about their research? And that helped me um, to uncover uh, a lot of the things. Um, and so, for example, a clear example of that is the audience selector, which was uh, a feature that uh, Facebook developed. And when they developed it, the way that they showed it, oh, people can have more control on the kind of things that um, are, are sort of they share with different kind of audiences. It could be only to you. It could be only to your friends or it could be to the open public. But basically, Facebook has has done this, uh, sort of developed this feature in order to uh, encourage people to contribute and to share more information about them, to feel more safe, to share more things about them. Because for them, the more you share, the more value they get. So this helped me sort of see what kind of language are they using in order to rationalize the development of different kind of features. And so I think that, you know, as researchers, we need to be very creative. One of the things that I've done, and I haven't included in the book, but I know that others are doing it at the moment, like Terrell Corby in his new book, is to analyze Facebook um, uh, patents and try to understand what they're doing there. So I think as researchers, we basically can use the kind of the only things that are available to us and try to see what kind of things they bring back to us. I mean, you, you've given a really um, great example, actually, of, of that 
sense of you know how Facebook kind of produces people um, who are you know or maybe produces behaviors, subjectivities that are really keen to share things, which you know seemingly is like um, you know a kind of maybe a neutral or even good thing, but actually at the same time is precisely about contributing to the business model. Uh, you know, is, is is precisely about how Facebook ultimately kind of makes makes money and and i think you know you, you can see the line between uh, the three case studies about this um maybe sort of transforming but but consistent uh focus on on that kind of you know getting out of the way of, of the business model doing its work and i suppose it, it raises the question of you know how do we sort of like resist this or get around it you know is it a matter of you know just kind of saying on the one hand, well, you know, um, we need to make more spam and, and more noise, be more kind of deviant. Um, is it a matter of, you know, kind of opting out of these systems? I must admit, I, I don't have a Facebook, but uh, because of, you know, kind of other um, bits of tech I use, I'm, you know, inevitably kind of interacting with it. Um, or do you have other, you know, kind of visions of sort of resistance and alternatives? I have several ideas that I was thinking while I was writing the book. Um, one of them is, I think, the, the key thread of, of, of these three stories is the attempt of media companies to commercialize more and more spaces uh, and more and more territories of our social lives. And so for me, the, the starting point would be to uh, to provide maybe other types of, of mediated spaces where we can connect. So that could be done through an internet tax, because if we're thinking about the internet as a public utility, then we have other places and spaces where we can communicate with each other, where the main business model is not to uh, commodify our lives. So to me, that would be a first starting point. The the second um, point of alternatives would be to decentralize technologies, because at the moment, we have very few companies that have too much power to decide, um, and they infiltrate into so many different um, spaces: uh, banking, health. They want to, to now. They want to to take over health as well with the, what we're seeing with COVID. Um, and I think it's quite important for us to have uh, uh, multiple different kind of technologies, which are also local. So one of the the problem with these companies is that most of them come from the U.S. Uh, and their motto is to scale up things, right? How can we do something that sort of applies to everybody, but according to our rules? And one of the things that are missing there are these kind of nuances of localized um, interpretation. So when we're thinking about these kind of deviant media categories, the problem with that is that if you have a big company that is so centralized, it can decide what is the deviant according to that. I talk a bit, a bit about that also in a in a article that's going to come out soon um, as part of the, a panel that we had about content moderation at the Association of Internet Researchers Association. And I talk about how TikTok, which is a Chinese company, how they define different kind of things as deviant, and they define deviant uh, people who are ugly, old, um, but also um, different kind of spaces which are poor and so on. And so... TikTok is another big company, Chinese company. And again, this is this is one of the problems when we have these kind of huge companies. So sort of decentralized technologies which are more local, second, second um, alternative. 
The third altern- alternative, uh, which is quite crucial, is re-examining how we value different kind of media workers. And this comes, and this is where I focus on um, both uh, the telephone operators, which are now uh, sort of portrayed as commercial content moderators, which is a concept that was coined by Sarah uh, Roberts. So I think one of the things that we saw again with COVID, and, and I'm so happy, I'm not happy that it happened, but I'm happy that people sort of, this this pandemic, as horrible as it is, it, it helps us think about things differently because a lot of things that weren't possible before are now possible. Uh, and so what we saw with Facebook, um, if you remember, a lot of, they had to not sort of fire or sort of sent away all of their content moderators who are in their countries, their um, uh, Philippines or different kind of countries in Asia. And they started to do content moderation through AI. And what we saw then is that they tag a lot of different kind of disinformation as okay, whereas important things like how to create DIY masks were categorized as spam. And what we saw then is that actually the job of human content moderators is so important because they because they're human, they have this kind of ability to understand nuances and context and what matters to people. And so I think with the COVID, as we started to realize that people that we previously didn't value so much, such as teachers or delivery people um, and nurses, and we saw how valuable they are to our society. And also that a lot of these people are happen, happen to be people of color and women. I think that this is a time for us to reevaluate how we want to value and hire and compensate and think about these people and not only to value people who are, for example, the programmers of, uh, and engineers of media companies. So if we can think about people in this kind of the chain um, differently and value them differently, I think that this is also would be a way forward.